Also look with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. We will be continuing our consideration of the Heidelberg Catechism as we look at the second commandment, the second commandment. As I mentioned last week, we do not have a scripture reading this morning because our scripture reading is found or quoted in one of our question and answers, and so it would be redundant to have our scripture reading since we'll be confessing our scripture reading in our confessional reading. So this morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35, question and answers 92, and then 96 through 98. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 92 asks, what is God's law? You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to the thousandth of generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then question 96 asks, What is God's will for us in the second commandment? that we in no way make any image of God nor worship Him in any other way than has been commanded in God's Word. Question 97 asks, May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. Question 98 asks, But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Well, boys and girls, what, uh, what are the three main sections of our catechism and which section are we currently in? Uh, Annalise? Very good. Which section are we in? Yes, very good. As a, uh, as a reminder or review... What is true faith? Yes. Knowledge, assent, and trust. What is the content of this faith? Noel? The Apostles' Creed. What is the benefit of this faith? Annabelle? Christ's righteousness. Very good. Christ's righteousness. Where does this faith come from? Where do we get? Isaiah. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit use? Violet? The word and the sacraments, the preaching of the word, uh, creates faith, and then the sacraments are used to sustain and, and nurture that faith. 
Uh, so the word and, and the sacraments. And now you may remember uh, when we thought about the sacraments. So the sacraments primarily, if we think of the sacraments as a playing field, they primarily uh, are playing field or God's playing field? Marcus? God's playing field. God is the one who is showcasing his character, his steadfast love and faithfulness to us and to our children in the sacraments. And then that last section of the grace section, we looked at um, another very important topic, uh, the keys of the kingdom. What are the two keys of the kingdom? Annabelle? Yes, the preaching of the word and church discipline. Now, if you think about these keys of the kingdom in relation to faith, this is where Christ has given authority to the church to affirm and disaffirm one's profession of faith. Uh, Christians are called not only to believe in their heart, but also profess that faith in the presence of many witnesses before the overseers in the church. And so Christ, through the keys of the kingdom, has given the church authority to affirm and disaffirm professions of faith. Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at that gratitude section. And uh, does anyone remember what, what some of the motivations are for why we should do good works? We've been redeemed from our sin by Christ alone. Why should we be motivated to do good if salvation is not one of those motivations? Noel? Yes, gratitude for what God has done for us. That's that chief motivation, which is why the third section is labeled gratitude. Some of the other uh, motivations include uh, seeking to be assured of our faith, seeking to win our neighbors to Christ, uh, seeking to praise and glorify our God. Now, when you think about this Christian life, this life of gratitude, what are the two main parts of this life of gratitude? Uh, yes, uh, Oh, yeah, Matthias, sorry. Right, death and resurrection, putting off the old man and making alive the new man. And a good work uh, we saw is defined in three ways. Uh, first, it's that internal disposition of the heart. Uh, do you remember what, what, what we need internally uh, to, for a good work to be a good work? We need true faith, right? Uh, good works need to proceed from true faith. They need to be done according to the law of God and unto his glory. And so now we're looking at the law of God as really the definition of, of good works. And the two, uh, the two divisions in the Ten Commandments include uh, love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, the first four consist of how we love God. The last six consist of how we love our neighbor. And last week we, under, we looked at how we, we should understand the first commandment. And it forbids idolatry. It calls us to love, honor, respect, trust our God um, really in everything as our providential Heavenly Father. And now... Uh, today, we are looking at this second commandment. One way you can think of the first commandment is, uh, is that it's trying to answer the question, who should we worship? Who should we worship? You shall have no other gods before me. We are to worship God alone. Now, one way to think about the second commandment is that it's answering the question, how should we worship this one God? First commandment is the who the second commandment is the how. And you'll notice both in the second commandment itself and in the, the, the catechism's exposition of the second commandment, it is explicitly forbidding images. 
Images are not allowed according to the second commandment and, and this Lord's Day. Now, if you remember the episode in Exodus when you know, Moses goes up Mount Sinai and comes down and he finds Israel under the leadership of Aaron dancing around this golden calf, which commandment, the first or the second, do you think Israel was transgressing in that moment? Noel? The first? Annabelle? Both? All right, anybody else want to put? Uh, yes? The second? Leah? Either the first or the second. That's, yes, no, that's... Okay. If it's idol, like meaning, meaning they were either idolizing something that wasn't God, so they were ele- truly elevating this calf of like we're worshiping the calf, or the second, which they thought the calf was an image of God, and therefore were appropriately worshiping God, the right object, but they were made, they made an image, so it was either the first. Or the exactly, that great answer. Um, <laughs> if. If Israel had constructed this golden calf to be a separate deity from Yahweh and were worshiping the golden calf as a deity, they would be transgressing that first commandment. However, many commentators, theologians uh, throughout, throughout history uh, believe that when Israel constructed this golden calf, they weren't setting up this golden calf as a separate deity. Rather, they were seeking to worship Yahweh through the golden calf which would then be a breach of the second commandment. So many interpreters think that they were breaking the second commandment. They were discontent with the boring worship that God had given them at the foot of Sinai. And they they wanted to spice things up a little bit because the other nations had pretty exciting worship. And they wanted to add a little a little excitement to their worship of Yahweh, so they construct this golden calf, and consequently then they are breaking the second commandment. The first commandment is the who question, the second commandment is the how question. Now when you look at question answer 96, what are the two main topics that this commandment addresses? The two main topics. Well, images, right? That's one topic. Good. What's the second, second topic? If you look at the, the answer of 96. Worship, right? So there's a specific reference here and a general reference. So the specific reference that's addressed in the uh, second commandment is images, the permissibility of images. But the, the more general or broad reference in this commandment is the nature of worship. What do we do when we gather together on Sundays in corporate worship? We're going to take two Sundays to look at this Lord's Day. And the reason we're going to take two Sundays to look at this Lord's Day, or to back up, today we're going to look just at images. Next week we're going to look at the more uh, broader reference of worship. And the reason why we're going to take two, two Sundays to look at this Lord's Day is twofold. On the one hand, many Christians and even many Reformed Christians have not given a lot of thought to these issues. The permissibility of images, even images of Jesus. What should we think about this? What does the Bible have to say about this? Uh, Worship. Why do we do what we do on Sundays? Why do we have the order of worship that we have? How would one go about constructing an order of worship? Does the Bible speak at all to to, to how we worship God in terms of our liturgical practice. 
These are questions that are very important, but not a lot of people give a lot of sustained intentional thought to these things. And so we're going to spend uh, this week looking at images, next week looking at worship. And the second reason we're going to spend two weeks is because these two topics are a big part of our theology, piety, and practice as a Reformed church plant, as a URC church plant. And so I think it, it's, it, these are topics that are worthy of our attention. Now, you'll notice that sort of the main point here in this Lord's Day is that uh, the second commandment forbids the making of any image of God. Right? That, that's, 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 what it's, that's, that's the catechism's interpretation of the second commandment. And this includes Jesus, pictures of Jesus, which that's really the most controversial issue when it comes to this, this Lord's Day. So that's the main point. And I'd like us to then consider why the catechism comes to this conclusion. This is in, in, in today's age, this is kind of a minority view. And so why would the, the catechism come to this conclusion? And there's two reasons for why the catechism comes to this conclusion that I would like us to consider. So the first reason that the catechism gives us for why uh, the second commandment forbids the making of images is that God cannot be imaged. So look with me at question answer 97. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. Catechism says God cannot be imaged. Now this, I think, is an obvious point. How would you go about visually depicting a being who is spirit, infinite, eternal, invisible, that which no eye has seen? How would you depict such a being? You can't. The catechism saying is that God cannot be imaged. But notice it also says that creatures may or, or can be visibly portrayed. And so now when you think about Jesus, uh, Jesus, of course, had, had a human nature, but, but no one knows what the human nature of Jesus actually looks like. And when you, when you think about pictures of Jesus that you've, you've seen in your um, experience on this earth, I guarantee you that's not what Jesus actually looked like. Most of us have seen pictures of Jesus, and he's a middle-aged Caucasian Westerner with long brown hair with a long beard. That's not what Jesus would have looked like. He, of course, would have been Jewish. Uh, Isaiah tells us he would not have been attractive in appearance. And so most cultures just uh, visibly portray a Jesus after their own culture. So we don't know what Jesus actually looked like in his humanity. Furthermore, Jesus' humanity revealed his divinity. Right? Jesus' humanity revealed his divinity. You know, in, in the historical context, when he lived and breathed before the apostles, uh, consider what Jesus says. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Or the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus was not only human. The Jesus whom we worship is the God-man. The one who had both a human and divine nature. And these two natures existed in inseparable union. 
Now, it is absolutely impossible to depict the divine nature of Christ. Which means that any image of Jesus is necessarily an inaccurate representation of who he is because you can't depict his divine nature. We don't worship a God, a Jesus who is just human, but Jesus in which the humanity reveals the divinity. And even if, let's say the Apostle John sketched a portrait of Jesus and that sketch has been, has been preserved throughout the channels of history and we could actually see a somewhat accurate depiction of who Jesus is. Even that depiction would be inaccurate because you can't visibly portray the divine nature. And so this is why the Catechism says that God cannot be imaged. Any depiction of Jesus will, be necess- will necessarily be inaccurate. And what happens when you think about the practical ethical concerns when it comes to to pictures of Jesus is it puts Christians in a predicament. Do you revere the image when you see an image of Jesus? That's sort of our natural inclination. If we see a picture of Jesus or if you even see a movie like a passion of the Christ, you're immediately moved to a worshipful uh, experience. Uh, to emotions that, that, that are evoked when you, even when you read the Gospels because this is, this is Christ that's being portrayed before you. And then you feel, well, am I breaking the second commandment? Because I'm, I, I'm, in some sense, approaching this image with a worshipful state of heart. But then, but then, on the other hand, you think, if I just treat this image as a common image, then am I, tr- am I breaking the third commandment and treating Christ in vain? It's a real practical, ethical dilemma that Christians are put in when they're confronted with with images and pictures of Jesus, especially in relation to the second and the third commandment. So the first reason why uh, the catechism says that we should not have have images of of God or even of Jesus is because uh, God cannot be imaged. The second reason that the catechism gives us for why we shouldn't have images is because God wants us to be instructed with the ears and not with the eyes. God wants us to be instructed with the ears and not with the eyes. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells his people that at Mount Sinai, he got, that is to say, God revealed his voice but not his form. At Mount Sinai, God revealed his voice but not his form, and then God urges Israel to not forget his voice, the statutes, the laws, the commandments that he has given them, but to be faithful to instruct and teach these commandments to their children and not to make images. God's telling Israel that his verbal revelation is sufficient. Israel does not need visual aids in order to pass on the faith. The verbal revelation that God has given them on Mount Sinai is sufficient. They don't need to make images like the other nations are doing. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 4. So in the Old Covenant, God revealed his voice and not his form and taught his people to pass on that faith through words and not through images. But when you come to the New Covenant... God did reveal his voice and his form to the apostles. You know, think of what the apostles were able to experience. The word of Christ dwelt among us. The word became flesh. 
the apostles received both verbal and visual revelation. They were able to both hear revelation from God and see and touch and tangibly experience divine revelation in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Again, remember those passages I recently quoted, that in Christ the fullness of the deity dwells bodily before their eyes. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The apostles had verbal and visual revelation. Now, of course, we know at the end of the Gospels that Christ commissions the apostles with this revelation uh, to proclaim this revelation to the nations. So 1 John 1, listen to what John says. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying he as an apostle had the privilege of hearing and, and seeing and touching divine revelation, but he as an apostle then trans, uh, uh, passes on this revelation through the mouth. He testifies and proclaims that which he heard and saw. So as one author puts it, the Spirit enabled the apostles to produce inspired scriptures, not to produce inspired art. The Spirit inspired the apostles to uh, produce inspired scriptures, not to, to produce inspired pictures or art. You know, the Great Commission doesn't go, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and making depictions of me to teach the illiterate. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, teaching all that I have commanded you. You have the privilege of seeing, experiencing, touching but now you are to teach and proclaim and testify to the revelation that you had the privilege of experiencing. So we have to recognize who we are as those who live in between the two advents of Christ. We live in a different age. We are the recipients of this verbal word going to the ends of the earth. We live after the ascension of Christ. We have to wrestle with the reality that Christ is physically absent from his people. He left this earth, and he won't come again until his second coming to judge the living and the dead. We don't have the privilege of receiving both verbal and visual revelation. That was unique to the apostles. We receive revelation that's been mediated to us through the apostles' proclamation and testimony. We don't have the privilege of receiving uh, visual and and, 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 and uh, verbal revelation directly, we receive verbal revelation mediated through the apostles. So Paul, someone who didn't see uh, Christ in his resurrected form likely, notice what he says. He says, we live by faith and not by sight. This is 
This is who we are living between these two advents. We live by faith and not by sight. Or listen to what Peter says. Though you have not seen him. Peter saw him, but he's writing to those who have not seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And John says that our hope as a pilgrim people, is one day being able to behold the glorified humanity of Jesus Christ when he breaks the clouds. John says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is our hope for the new creation. We don't have the, real, we don't have the privilege of seeing in the here and now, we live by faith, but we have the hope of one day seeing Jesus in his glorified humanity. And thus, we are, are very much in a similar place as the Old Testament people of God. Jeremiah 4, God told the people of Israel that he had revealed to them his voice, but not his form. And thus, God has revealed to us his voice, mediated through the apostles in his word. He has not revealed to us his form. And we are called to be content with that revelation. You know, it's interesting at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, God, uh, God says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. The image of God, the image of God, whatever that might be, it belongs to the secret things. We are to be content with what has been revealed. And what has been revealed is this verbal revelation that's encapsulated in, in the scriptures. I'll listen to how one author puts it. I love, I love how he, he summarizes um, this point. He says, We believe and obey and teach the revelation that has been given us and do not meddle with what has not. Israelite parents did not need pictures to teach their children. The apostles who actually saw the form did not need pictures to teach the church. New Testament Christians who have never seen the form do not need pictures to teach their children. The revelation that God has given is sufficient. By the word and sacraments, the church teaches the flock, including the children, that they are pilgrims who do not now see, but wait eagerly for the day they will. This is who we are, and we are called to be content with what God has given us, what is accurate, what is true. And we are to teach and propagate that truth to those around us. And you'll notice that this is the point that is taught for us in question answer 98. So the question says, but may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? Now the historical context behind question answer 98 is the context of the Middle Ages. Middle Ages, the vast majority of people in Europe were illiterate. They could not read. Furthermore, the Mass was conducted in Latin, which was virtually unknown to the common person. And so images were used as books for the illiterate. In the Middle Ages, one of the only ways that the average person could come to any knowledge of the biblical story was through images. However, I mentioned this before, that one of the reasons why these books, images, were introduced as books for the people is because the church had already neglected their task of catechizing her people. 
neglected the task that Jesus gave to the church to teach all the nations all that I have commanded you. One of the hallmarks of the Reformation was the recovery of verbal catechesis. This is why Martin Luther said, we have a catechism on the pulpit, something that's not been done in over a thousand years. In fact, all the churches of the Reformation would have afternoon services, just like what we're doing here, to teach the children, teach the laity the truth of God's word verbally. And when you do that, you don't need images as books for the people. If you're doing your job sufficiently in catechesis. John Calvin says, speaking to this issue, he says, you know, the simple message that the cross takes away our sins communicates way more than a thousand crosses built of wood, gold, or silver. And so the heart of the Reformation was to return the biblical prerogative that Jesus gave the church in the Great Commission to teach the nations all that I have commanded you. And so the answer to question 98, again, resolutely says no. No, images should not be introduced as books for the people, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. The catechism is saying that we live as those who, who, we live in between these two advents of Christ, and thus we are called to be instructed not through images, but through his word. We are called to be instructed not through the eyes, but through the ears. The only visual aid we are given in this age as a pilgrim people are found in the sacraments. The Lord's Supper and baptism, those are the visual aids that Christ directly instituted uh, for the entire duration of the New Covenant Church. Now, I think it's important when we talk about this issue in images, it's important that we, I think we emphasize not the negative aspect of this, but the positive aspect. I I don't think we should be a people who wear on our sleeve. We hate images. You know, rid your house of every image of Jesus. But rather, we should emphasize the positive aspect that question answer 98 puts before us. We are a people who find our life in the living preaching of God's word. We're a people who try to showcase and buttress the power of God's word, and that's what makes us tick. That's what we should wear on our sleeve. And we are to be content with what God has given us in this age as his people. And so I think it's important that we emphasize that positive aspect rather than just emphasizing the negative prohibition. We are to be a people who are content with a living, powerful, active preaching of God's word. Well, next week we will um, finish up our consideration of this Lord's Day as we look at how this commandment speaks to to, to what we do in corporate worship. It speaks to how we have uh, constructed our order of worship as a Reformed church and also touches upon a very important part of our theology, piety, and practice. So let us pray.